0: Chapter 10, continue through this book, we are finishing up then the thought again in chapter 8 about these believers in the church who were trying to force uh, the what supposedly weaker brothers and sisters to eat meat offered to idols, things that they were uncomfortable with, and it has basically been not so much about the meat, although we'll deal a little more with that uh, in a week or two. But it's about how you uh, treat one another and what is a mature Christian, what does he look like and what does he not look like. And what we're finding is that these people who thought themselves to be so mature really weren't doing all that well. They were being very unloving to their, and judgmental to their Christian brothers and sisters. And so these three chapters are dealing with Christian liberty, Christian freedom, but in, in the context of what we're willing to give up, even legitimate things, if need be, for the sake of somebody, uh, especially a weaker brother or sister in Christ. Are we so full of ourselves that we can't say no to ourselves? And of course, last week we dealt uh, with that very subject of self-discipline, of being able to say no to yourself for the cause of Christ, and of course that's extremely important all that the Christian life is to be lived with purpose and with a goal in mind, not haphazardly. Paul says you're running a race, and it's not about winning, but it's about uh, running well, running according to the rules. Our goal is not just to make it to heaven or escape hell, but to live in a way that builds up the kingdom and it glorifies the Lord. And the, the Corinthian church was failing miserably at this. They were living in immorality, uh, all the different things that we've been seeing here, and Paul says you're not running well. And of course, as we're going to see today, you're in danger of, like these Israelites, some of you are not making it to the end, of falling by the wayside. And then, uh, and again, we understand Not, uh, that doesn't mean they're going to lose their salvation, but you're in danger of, that. but living that way would expose the fact that you probably are not saved, right, to begin with. So, he says, he kind of finished up chapter 9 with this. We'll take discipline and self-denial, and these should never be thought of as negative. It should be our delight to endure hardship and sacrifice for the Lord. Uh, Christianity is something that, it's a delight to serve the Lord. It's a delight to suffer. Jesus says, rejoice when you are persecuted. Doesn't mean that it's happy and... Pleasant, but we rejoice in these things because we know we have a greater purpose. Uh, we looked at Second Timothy 2:3. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier is active in active service. Again, notice the similarity to running the race. We are not just runners in a race, as it were, but we are soldiers in a war. No soldier, in active servant, entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life, so that he, uh, to the point that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Of course, it is being involved in the affairs of everyday life in which we are to use to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, but we don't get so caught up in life that we forget what life's all about. We are to please the one who has enlisted us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules, right? Which is, again, what we dealt with last week. We run the race with a goal in mind a certain way. It's not about getting to heaven. It's about getting to heaven well, serving the Lord well while we do that. Yes, we are saved by grace, but grace teaches us to deny ungodliness. Grace we, we are saved by grace, therefore, we give ourselves totally to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is just one example of why nominal Christians are not actual Christians. You cannot just decide one day to be a Christian It takes a transformed heart by the sovereign grace of God. So, but anyway, yeah, don't don't try to get me to re-preach last week's message. Paul has been teaching that effective Christian service is not an, always an easy task. Putting the flesh to death, which is part of running the race properly, right? Finding the warfare in a proper way. Putting that flesh to death requires commitment and hard work and discipline. But the, the goal is worth it. It's worth it for me to be able to say no to myself, to give up certain things. It's my delight to do that. if I might honor the one who has given himself for me while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. It seems we spend a lot of time complaining of our trials as if we expect something different when, when Paul, the Lord is been telling us what to expect. On the flip side, these Corinthians evidently thought that since they were saved, they have arrived and were so confident in themselves, and Paul is reminding them that that's a recipe for disaster, to be so full of yourself, so self-confident, so self-confident, that you fail to look around and, and look at the way you are treating one another. And of course, we're going to get to this, as we've said, in chapter 11, the latter part. Many were sick and dying for that very reason. They were treating the body of Christ with contempt. With, with The poor in the church were being treated in a, uh, a way that was so ungodly that there, God was disciplining them on his own with sickness, even death. And we saw this arrogance back in chapter 4 of First Corinthians where Paul says, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have hatred. You have become king. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. But of course he's speaking tongue-in-cheek. They thought because they had all these dips, and we'll get to in the latter part of the book, they, they had all these dips, uh, that uh, they had arrived to the Christian life. And Paul says... Need to stop and take a look at the way you're living uh, and, and wake up. And, and so he's going to give an example today in the first part of chapter 10 of Israel and the way they were. And, and, and he's going to show us in this the type of what's going on and what can go on with us. And so verse 12 obviously sums it up where he says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall, as Israel of old thought because they had been given the law they had, they had uh, been delivered out of Egypt through these great miracles and somehow they were special that God loved them and hated everybody else and they found out differently when they died in the wilderness through unbelief. Actually, an overconfident Christian is an oxymoron. It's a living contradiction. How can a Christian be overconfident? Well, we know how we can because we all can struggle with this, right? But if you realize that uh, you are an undone sinner and you catch yourself on the merits of Jesus Christ, your salvation, why do we turn around and think all of a sudden that, well, we take care of ourselves? Next week we'll see how they were even perhaps using the Lord's table as an easy way to holiness, and we'll save that for next uh, week. What we have today is much like in the last chapter when Paul gives an example of his overall point. It's kind of a sermon within a sermon. And again, as we read those first 13 verses, you can kind of see how it, it, in one sense it just stands alone. There's just so much there. Even if there wasn't the context around it, but of course, when you ignore the context, you can usually uh, go astray. But we notice here the danger of presumption. And again, it goes back to the careless way they were treating those who were weak; who they thought were weaker than them, and didn't weren't examining themselves. And it's clear by now that they weren't where they thought they were spiritually. They were living a lot more like Israel that died in the wilderness than a new covenant Christian who is to be conformed to Christ. And so the first three verses Paul uh, re- we kind of recounts how Israel passed through the sea or in, in a sense were baptized into Moses and in the cloud in the sea They of the manna, spiritual food. They drank from the spiritual rock. that is the water that came from the rock. And he says, uh, by way of example, that what, that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, most of them, uh, of most of them, God was not pleased, and they were thrown in the wilderness. They were discarded, you might say, in the wilderness. And so, in the first few verses here, we see, that, first of all, that these were real events. This actually took place. The Old Testament, as well as a new, is an historical document written by God from Genesis 1-1 through is all inspired. It all happened just the way it was revealed to us. We don't apologize for believing that this is, uh, inspired, infallible word of God without error. He's being emphatic here said, this is, it's important, he says, for you to know this. There's a lesson in the Israelites that you guys have missed entirely. And he noticed in verses, uh, verse 11, where he says, now these things happen to them as an example. In the Greek, that is the word type. Uh, some of us are doing a book study, uh, we're dealing with the covenants, uh, and different things, and one of the things we can deal with is, what is a type? Well, Paul says that everything Israel went through, at least beginning with Moses, right on through, and I think really right on through to the end, is in some way a type. And not just an example, that's the way it's translated, but the Greek word is where we get the word type. It's a picture. It's, it's related. They're going through something. And again, as, you, as you're reading this, didn't it, by the time you got to verse 5, begin to think, boy, that looks a lot, that looks pretty familiar well, yeah, it looks familiar because we have been baptized unto our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. and We have eaten and drunk from that same spiritual thing as well. So, they're going, the Lord put them through three things to picture what was going to happen later on is that the fulfillment of that is Christ in the church. Now, it's not that those things were were unimportant. But, again, we don't have time to get into all that right now. But just notice that. And it's the same word back in verse 6, the same word there with, that's translated examples for us in the ESV as well. Now these things took place as an example, but as a type, as a picture, something, something to see of Christ and ourselves in what they were going through. And of course, as we've gone through those in the Old Testament, I hope that we are overall familiar with what I'm talking about here. And then he says, Paul makes it clear, that these are historical events, not myths or, or legends. And then and it says here in verse, is it sixteen? No, nope. it's verse. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, not verse sixteen, but verse uh, verse uh, eleven. Now these things happen to them as an example, but they are written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. Now, I just point this out in passing. I don't think this is critical to understanding the text, but it's, it's to me it's extremely important to understand this is one of the reasons why I hold the view that I do that we are in the kingdom, that there's not a kingdom we're waiting for. Again, we don't make that a huge matter of fellowship, but because what does Paul say here? He does not say that we are living in One of the later kingdoms or ages. We live, we are living at the end of all the the ages. There's a progression of ages with what we see in the Old Testament. The age, you might say, before Abraham or the age uh, of Israel. Uh, now we live in the age of grace, the age in which the kingdom is being built. And Paul says, by the way, you live in the last age. not, Not what it says, the end of the ages. For some reason the KJV translates it translates it the end of the world, which and I think it's rather unfortunate. Not sure exactly how you're supposed to take that, but literally it is the end of the ages. So we're in the last age. So I'll just throw that out there for you so it helps you understand where I'm coming from when I deal with eschatology and things like that. To me, that's a very clear statement. We'll see a very a similar thing in chapter 15 as well. But Paul makes it clear these are historical events. The Old Testament is historical. While there are allegories in it, it is not allegorical. It is not just to be seen as some sort of allegorical thing that didn't really happen. Uh, spiritual, you know, like some people read, Genesis 1 and 2, and say, well, no, that's not really explaining how the earth began. It's all allegory of this and that. It's not just symbolic. It's got symbols in it. But it's not just symbolic. It actually happened. And it had to happen for Christ to come and to be qualified as our Savior, right? And so he says here they were baptized into Moses. Now, that is not the counterpart of our baptism it's a picture of our baptism but we live in a different covenant in the sense that the um, it's it's not a counterpart to our baptism because we baptize those who are believers and clearly all these Israelites who left Egypt were baptized into Moses and what he means by that is that they were leaving Pharaoh and the old world and they were now making themselves followers of Moses who were baptized into Moses and his leadership just as we are baptized, we are leaving the world and we now are identify ourselves with Christ. But the, not all Israel was saved, right? That's one of the points Paul makes here. They were all baptized physically, but they weren't uh, baptized in the heart. They weren't circumcised, you might say, in the heart. And that's why National Israel pictures the church in that the things that happened to them Picture the things that happen to all believers in the New Covenant. In this case, by following Moses across the Red Sea and by following the cloud, they were placing themselves under the authority of Moses and rejecting Pharaoh. And that's what baptism is to us. It is a, a public identification. Christ is Lord. Christ is my Lord. I no longer follow the world. I no longer follow Satan. We know that many actually were not doing that from the heart though, as the next few voices of verses point out. And that's kind of the whole point. So all Christians are baptized and identified with Christ, because He's our salvation, He's our life, He's our Lord, we follow Him now. We don't baptize those who do not have not made a profession of Christ because it would be acting out a lie. See a lot of those people in, in Israel. Again, it's a type, it's a picture of what Christians do, of what the church did. But a lot of those Israelites did had no desire to follow Moses or God, and made that very clear. So they were acting out a lie, as it were, as they were being baptized into Moses. So just like then, physically following Moses in baptism didn't mean that you actually did that in your heart. It represented it, but unless there's a spiritual baptism, unless the Holy Spirit changes you and, and, and makes you a new creature, if you are baptized today, it, and, 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 and that's not true, you're not really changing your heart, you're acting out a lie. It's a, it's an outward sign of what should be an inward reality. And we see that all these things picture things that we do today as Christians But the point in both cases is that if they don't represent inward spiritual realities, it's just a ritual, and you're not going to finish the race. See, the problem is is that they identified themselves with Moses and Yahweh, but they did not have any. uh, They did not follow Moses and and Yahweh, and so therefore they didn't make it to Promised Land. Right? And how many people today are baptized as Christians, but they are not Christians? and uh, they don't make it to heaven. So that is why only those who have a credible profession should be baptized and participate in the Lord's table. Of course, we're baptized, we're Baptist and we've dealt with these uh, issues before. I'm, I'm just dealing with these things because we're kind of going through them now. But I know uh, some who uh, are so caught up in the idea that we're still under the same covenant that the Israelites were, that they not only baptize their babies, but they allow them, when they get to be toddlers, whatever, to participate in the Lord's table. Because they, well, we're all under the covenant and Israel did it, so we, why wouldn't we do it? Well, because it's supposed to represent an inward reality. The problem is that being the Abrahamic covenant, Points forward to the new covenant, the spiritual covenant of those who place their faith in Christ. If you want to be part of a covenant, if you want to say you're still under the old covenant, if you want to be part of an obsolete covenant that points to the new covenant, I guess that's all well and good. Well, it's not really. But you know, I mean, I know a lot of great guys who are who think that way. But I want to be part of the covenant that actually saves, and of course, that's, that's the, 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 uh, the incongruity of the whole thing, is that there are those, who, you know, even if they think they're still under the Old Covenant, they, if, if you're saved, you're in the New Covenant, although you're not saved, right? Anyway, the problem is going to be that many of these Israelites weren't obedient to Moses, and by extension, the Lord spiritual food and drink clearly refers to the miraculous way the Lord fed them. It isn't that they were having communion together. It's not to be looked at as it's a type of communion, right? But they weren't actually having communion with each other. They were acting these things out. And the Lord worked it out in a way to show a picture of what would happen later on as God's people come together to eat and drink the Lord's table. He is showing that while they identified with the Lord and were blessed by the Lord, they did not live up to the calling. Of course, that's what Paul's point. We get too far away from Paul's overall point. The point here is it's possible to be a hypocrite, to say one thing and live another. They had left Egypt with their bodies, but not with their hearts. And he's exhorting Christians not to assume things, or you it's not just about whether you make it to heaven or not, as Christians, we don't want to assume things so that we don't end up running well. Like, you know, I think we made this point last week. I don't want to be a Christian who just is worried about whether I get to heaven or not. There's a sense in which that is a man-centered... Obviously, I want to be and go to heaven. But I know that my life is to be more than that. It is to be centered around Christ. And these people weren't centered around Jesus... They were sitting around themselves. They weren't running well. And I think there were probably actual Christians like that. The Jewish legend has it that the little rock that Moses struck that followed them around so they could drink, you know, whether that's true or not, I, I have my doubts. Paul might be referring to that. But the word rock here speaks of, one, of a bedrock, a foundation not of a boulder. And he says that it was Christ that was following them around and feeding them. Not literally, but in in picture form. Christ was the one taking peace. We, we sang a song, the cleft of the rock. Jesus is the cleft of the rock. He, you've got to get, Moses had to be placed in that cleft to be shielded from the glory of God. So Christ is our rock. So many ways here. So I would imagine that the greater implication is that. These spoke of Christ and his future work. The water, the, the manna, spoke of Jesus and the bread of life, the bread from heaven, the water, of course, he's the living water. These are, these are ways that they are types of Christ. These things were spiritual in their lesson. Not that they uh, weren't doing things for Israel in the flesh, of course, but they speak to Jesus and his work. And they also speak to Jesus' as deity and uh, pre-existence, right? Because if Christ was involved in those things, then Christ existed before He was born of Mary, right? So, in verse five. By now, a lot of Corinthians would be doing just what we have been doing, as I said before, saying that this looks oh, this looks familiar, and it looks like the church in a sense, in a physical way. But then, in verse five, Paul lays the bomb. Most of them were strewn across the wilderness because their desire was evil. They they were acting out things that were not tr- true. And they were overthrown in the wilderness. Remember, of course, that uh, when they tried to go into Israel, so they, they, didn't, they didn't want to go into Israel because there were 10 uh, spies, bad report eventually tried and they were defeated and they made the water for 40 years and that whole generation died in the wilderness none of them made it even the believers didn't make it because of that so I believe his point is not just that we might not make it but that they didn't at that point that's a point that he makes in in the book of Hebrews, for instance, remember in chapters 3 and 4, where Israel did not enter into Christ's rest. It's a valid point to make. Many look like covenant people, and it turns out they were not. But Paul's overall point in these chapters is not just about falling away from the Lord, but being an ineffective saint. And I've tried to keep that before, because while we we want to deal with, always make sure our calling election is sure, and never presume upon the Lord, our point over the last few weeks has been, are we struggling to uh serve the Lord well? Lest we be uh kind of cast away or become uh, you know, we're still Christians but we're not I don't I don't want to be a also ran, a Christian who gets to heaven but he really never amounted to much. And it, I think should be unacceptable to Christians. It's Warning us to fight properly, to keep our bodies under control, to love the brethren, to try to put forth the effort. And so, in the following verses, after verse six, he lists some specific examples that we are not to follow. So here he gives the the first five verses talk about how Israel looked apart, part, but then we're going to see what they really did. They they they. They followed Moses out of Egypt, but it turns out, it was never real. And, and First of all, we see that in verse 7, they were idol- idolaters. In each case here, Paul says, don't be like them. In this case, don't be idolaters. Which kind of embodies everything that's going to follow. Any Christian wouldn't give a second look to a carved idol, but we easily give our love and our attention and our energy to Something created that should be Christ. And so idolatry is something we have always got to be aware of and we struggle with. We know that the golden calf of Exodus 32 was supposed to represent Yahweh. Both uh, Aaron said, he didn't say, This is a God other than Yahweh. He said, This is the God who brought you up out of Egypt. He said, This is Yahweh. What's it to replace Yahweh? And so the great sin was not that they rejected Yahweh in name, but they didn't like Yahweh, they didn't like the way Yahweh was God, and they wanted a God that suited them better. A new and improved God. See, Moses was on the mountain longer than they were comfortable with. They didn't like invisibility, they didn't like a God that was hidden in the cloud. They didn't like a God they couldn't see, that they couldn't touch, that they couldn't lift up and carry and put where they wanted to. A God that they could control. They didn't like waiting and wondering, what is God going to do next? Has any of us ever struggled with that? I'm not really happy with the way this is going. They wanted God that they could control, that would work on their timetable according to their agenda. But the problem is, is that when we expect the Lord to make it easy on us and do our will, we be, what are we doing? We're making ourselves God. But it's idolatry. And so, it has, idolatry has an immediate effect, secondly, and that is immorality. Because once you become God, then whatever pleases you becomes what you live for. And it almost always develops into, among other things, immorality. As he says, the people rose up to play. There is uh, the idea that perhaps this is a euphemism for some sort of orgy. Uh, The the word is translated by uh, the KJV in uh, when Sarah, remember when Abimelech saw Abraham, I think, sporting with uh, Sarah, that word sporting, literally means to laugh or to play. But Whatever they were doing, it wasn't something that because remember Abraham said that Sarah's my sister, and when he sees whatever they're doing, he says mm, I don't think so. So they weren't laughing together. They were doing something that he says nah, that's a wife, that's the husband-wife thing going on there, right? So there, there's, that's why it's assumed that whatever's going on here, it is something that it was immoral. Whether they were just up dancing, having a good time, right? And then, since he brings immorality immediately into it, that would be another reason why it's probably what Paul—the point he is making here—they have developed a god that they're not afraid of. So now we're going to enjoy life. You know, I don't—I'm not worried about the judgment anymore. I'll do what I want to do. And so, in verse eight, they cast off God's authority and immediately puts puts pleasing self at the forefront. And that, as I said, almost always develops into some sort of sexual immorality. And again, that describes the Corinthian Church, right? That's one of the things we've been seeing. And so again, I don't don't think any of this would be lost on the Corinthians, and I hope it's not lost on us. To put self first is going to result in being strewn or regulated to the sidelines in some way. You can't worship the Lord in an atmosphere of idolatry and immorality. Verse 14, what does he say? He, Therefore, flee from idolatry. As he listed all these things, it's all idolatry. So he says, flee idolatry. Understand that God is God and worship of him alone. And that's the answer to these other things. Don't play around with it. I, once, I recently heard of a pastor who Holds several conferences a year, and in one of the workshops was on marital relationships, and he said that every day pastors were coming to him, uh, confessing that they didn't just have affairs, but every day they were confessing that they were involved in affairs at, the, at that time. So again, this isn't just pie in the sky in theology, this is all know that these are things that we have to keep a control of, and that we struggle with. Even sound Christians doctrinally cannot assume that they don't have to fight the good fight, don't have to have discipline. Just look at the world around you. It's, it's all about freedom. Uh, and What, what where is, what is the, the topic that drives everything that's going on in our culture today? freedom, right? That's because when you, once you cast off God, as our culture has done decades ago, eventually it's going to get down to I will decide for myself who I am and how I function. I mean, it, there should be nothing that's going on today that surprises us. It just can't be overstressed. Numbers 25.1 is where this when the places this took place. And a lot of these things can be found all throughout uh, the But while Israel lived in Shittim the people began to pour after the daughters of Moab, these invited the people to sacrifice to their of, to, to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So you see the, the the connection between idolatry and immorality. But as we go to the third one, notice the obvious progression. When we become God, then our pleasure and needs and desires become the act of worship to this idol. We become the idol. We're you know we're the God now. So therefore, every the the sacrifice is anything that pleases me, the idol. And so, thirdly, he says, don't put the Lord to the test. Uh, again, there's a uh, Many places that this takes place. Uh, I think one Numbers 21:5 would be an instance of this. He mentions it here. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. And here's how you put the Lord to the test: Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? You're not doing what I want you to do. I, I, I expect this out of you, and you're not giving that to me. But there's no food or water. And we loathe this worthless food. We hate having to eat honey bread, which is what manna is, right? Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. Here they question his providence. I think putting the Lord to the test speaks primarily to, I don't like the way God is directing things. And you see why it's part of idolatry. They didn't like when how he was providing for them. Because self is the center of all these things. The Lord didn't think much of it, did he? He sent these uh, deadly snakes. And it should make us cringe when we hear ourselves say those things, or when we think them in our head. And I don't like the way this turned out. Then fourthly, verse 10, again, this could refer to many things here, when he says, don't be um, They'll grumble, as some of them did. Uh, I think, think about chapter uh, 16, where they rebelled against Korah because they didn't like the leadership. You know, Korah said, look, well, why does Aaron have to be the priest? Why can't I be the priest? You know, again, you're grumbling. I don't like the way things are going. Um, and says because of that, uh, it, well, chapter 14 is when they refused to go, they we're allowed to go into Canaan because they said, well, the Canaanites are bigger than we are. And what they're saying is that Canaanites are bigger than our God is. They're just grumbling. Numbers 11. 1. Let me just read those two if you want to turn there real quick. Again, you could just, every, every instance in these uh, books kind of speak to this, but Numbers 11 I thought was good too. I did put that on the screen. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, and the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Uh, Verse 4. Now the rabble, that is the, the the truly ungodly among Israel, that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. See the grumbling, we don't like the honey bread, we want meat. And then one more verse here, verse 10, And Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. So they're weeping, They're, they're beside themselves because they have to eat the manna. Because they don't have what they want, they're grumbling. And they're not just, it's not just they grumble, they're, they're literally weeping. They're so, having to eat this manna, this honey bread, is so bad. The basic problem was the Lord wasn't doing things their way, and so they grumble against Him. Because their God wasn't getting what He wanted, and so His wrath was kindled. I'm not talking about Yahweh. Right? When you become God, and you don't get what you want, your wrath gets kindled, right? Have we ever found ourselves doing that? Mad and upset because something happened we didn't like? Because we're not, we're, we're so weak in our faith that we can't lay it before the Lord? And so putting God to the test was demanding that God meet their perceived needs in the way in which they demanded. And so I think the question is asked in Exodus 17.7 kind of sums it up. Where in one case they say, "Is the Lord among us or not?" In other words, we don't have the food we want. We don't. In that case, it, we the water is bitter. We don't have the water we want, and so we're questioning whether God is even around or not. And of course, the Lord didn't go for that very well either. The way the Israelites determined God's presence was, "Are you blessing me as I want to be blessed?" If they were thirsty, they demanded that God would satisfy their thirst. If they were threatened, uh, and and if if they didn't, they would threaten not to believe in Him at all. Notice in uh, Psalm, how the psalmist puts this. I did have Numbers 11 and 4, sorry about that. Psalm 106 says, uh, but they had a wanton craving in the wilderness. It's not a legitimate craving. This is a wanton. This is a fleshly, self-centered craving, right? And put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasted disease among them. So he said, okay, I'll, I'll let you have it, but I'm going, to, I'm going to teach you what's going on here. See, as soon as you forget the Lord has a purpose for everything, you start to fail miserably. And so in verse 12, the last two verses here, it says, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. You, you've seen these examples. And it's fine to stand firm in Christ, but these were happy to stand firm in their own strength and to presume upon the Lord. And that's not standing firm biblically. They think they're standing in Christ. I'm talking about the Corinthians. They think they're standing in Christ and presuming upon him. They're thinking that they have arrived spiritually, but they are not living for the Lord. And and Paul says, you know, you guys are in danger of falling away. Don't presume. There are two things that's got to happen for my heart not to condemn me. First of all, I've got to stand in Christ's work for my own salvation, as I've already said. But the other is I got to see Christ's fruit in my life as evidence of new life. In other words, it's one thing to to, to cast yourself on Christ, but how do I know that's real? Because now Christ is living through me. Doesn't it mean that I have to be a Charles Had Spurgeon. I just need to be doing things for the Lord. I need to see evidence of life in me. See, the Corinthians had gifts, but not the fruit of love for Christ and His people, and they were being sidelined. And there's there's a whole, I think, lesson. You know, I don't want to be sidelined. I don't want to be a Christian. I don't want to have my theology right and to be a believer in Christ, but really have no, uh, don't put forth any effort to serve the Lord be nonchalant about evil it is often that the place we think we are the strongest is where we are the weakest so standing in Christ is also being dependent upon Christ not just believing that he's the savior of your sins but in continuing to realize I need Christ and if you really need Christ you know you need his word to a Christian who doesn't emphasize learning the word and, and living by the word Doesn't feel he needs Christ, because that's how Christ is ministered to you, is through the Word. So, stand in Christ, then stand in the Word. So lastly, then in verse 13, here we have the encouragement. Every way the Israelites reacted to problems was exactly the wrong way, right? They act, they reacted selfishly, not godly. The temptations here are the same as the above verses, and so verse thirteen says, "No temptation is overtaking you." He's referring to all these trials of Israel. We, you know, we as we went through Exodus, we read where God tested Israel in the wilderness. They, he sent things to see what they would do. Would they call upon Him? These are what temptations are. They are tests from God. God doesn't send a temptation to get us to sin. He, he sends a temptation. So we can show what we're made of, show what Christ means to us. So he says, those temptation no, none of these trials that come, no matter whether it's Satan tempting you to sin, no matter whether it's a circumstance that God has sent to see that you can show yourself as a Christian, nothing comes that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted above your ability. But with the temptation, we might say with the trial, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. Often Satan tempts us with difficulties as well as overt temptations to sin, but there is no such thing as a problem that is unique to us. This is one thing I think that helps us. to Remember that you're not the only one going through whatever you're going through. You will never go through anything that others have not gone through. And in all these things, the Lord has gone through them and come through victorious. And there are countless examples of Christians who have gone through horrendous things right up into the flames of the stake and have been faithful to the Lord. How that not, should that not encourage us to say, if by the grace of God they did it, should I do any less? Can I do any less? especially when we're told here that God will provide the means necessary to endure it. Not to escape it, in the sense of to, to free ourselves from it, because that might not happen. The escape is to not fall prey to a trial, but to, uh, to, to uh, overcome it, to be faithful through it. The Lord never tempts us so that we will sin, but that we will not sin. But we will grow. That we will learn to trust in Him. This is why we use the word trial often for these temptations because it reminds us of their purpose. We don't have time to go to James chapter 1 but read James chapter 1 where uh, these are referred to as trials. And, and it makes the point, gee, that God never tempts us to sin. He always tempts us in a way that to build up our faith. He, it's a trial Jesus was tempted in every way we were and every way Israel was. He went through all the things that we that are common to us, but he did so in a way that he glorified the Father in all those things. Tragically, tragedy and difficulty are temptations to idolatry and grumble. But when we fall into those things, we miss the point of why the Lord allowed us to go through there. He didn't want us to fall into idolatry. He wanted us to see why he is the one that we must serve. Why he is better than the world. He is better than the sin that tempts us. When the Lord um, told us to pray that, uh, that the Father would not lead us into temptation, it wasn't because the Lord was tempting us to sin. Literally, the Lord is going to send temptations or tests. So that we can show forth his glory. Jesus is telling us to pray that the Lord's test wouldn't be used by Satan and the flesh to be a temptation to sin. That we not fall into the what the temptation wanted us to do. Which was the sin. Our desires aren't evil. But because we are fallen sinners, all, all desires have a potential for an unhappy ending. See, sex can end up in fornication. Hunger can end up in gluttony. Money can end up in greed. There aren't there's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves. It's how our sinfulness uses them. But those desires are given by God, not to be used to those ends. And so the encouragement here—we're we're just about done—is that they are not only supposed to be used for good. But that the Lord has given us the ability or the power to use everything for good. Some say that our desires are like rafts on a ocean's current. You know, I I, I want to do it, but I can't stop myself, I can't help it, I've got to do it. Uh, one pastor had I was talking to some young men who were kind of saying that that they can't help it. it, it, it God, I was give God made me that way. And he, this was back when they had sailing ships. He took them to the. uh Harbor to watch the sailing ships, and he said, "Look, you are not a raft to be flown here and there. You got to sail the Holy Spirit. You got, you've got the power. And if you know anything about sailing, and I know precious little, I know that a sail, when it's used properly, can guide that ship against the wind. You don't have to. The whole point is that you don't have to go. The sails aren't there just so you can wind and blow you wherever it's blowing you. It's to get you." So you can go where you want to go. That's what the Holy Spirit has enabled us, that, that way out, the way of escape, you have been given everything that is necessary for you to live godly and not just go with the flow. The ESV has it right here. He provides the way of escape, not a way of escape. It isn't that the Lord is always going to provide a way out, because many times he won't. You won't end the trial. We have the way given to us so that we can withstand it, and we can endure faithfully in it. And there's only one way that we can do that, and that's Matthew 14 38. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. but even the disciples who couldn't pray stay awake long enough to pray with the Lord. But he it says, uh, It's not that you If you watch and pray, you won't ever be tempted, but you won't fall prey to the temptation. Jesus withstood Satan by quoting Scripture. And please, it's not just the quoting of Scripture, it's the believing and the obeying of Scripture that that keeps us from temptation. Not just quoting verses. So let's be careful thinking that there's a method or technique our new nature is the way that leads us to victory as the Holy Spirit bans the flame of love for Christ. Christ loved the Father more than himself in the wilderness. And he's got that same spirit. We have the same spirit he has. He was faithful for 40 days and to think towards, coincides with the 40 years of Israel. He was the true Israel, the one who did what Israel could not. So it's our new nature that prays and trusts and seeks to put the Lord first. That's the only way we can be triumphant in this life and not just become the also land that that these Corinthians were becoming. We aren't inner tubes that must fall prey to every difficulty and trial. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. let me just, uh, one verse, one section here, then we're done. I think Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1, speaks to all this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. See, so you, you've got to actually be a Christian. You, you can't just be a, I've decided to follow Jesus. It's, you've got to have a supernatural work of conversion. If you have been raised with Christ, new life with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. How do you do that? Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The power of sin means that has been defeated, and it no longer has dominion over us. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So put to death, therefore, what is earthly sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. you don't have to do those things, you've been delivered from the power of those things. Yes, we we struggle with those things, but we don't have to if we set our minds on Christ. Your situation is not special to you alone, but it is special in that it has a wonderful purpose. No matter how much it hurts, what's wonderful for a Christian is to know that these trials come for good. None of us are suffering or being tempted or tried more than anyone else ever has But there is a reason, a good reason from a loving God for it. And the the poor naturalists or secularists, they see no reason for anything that is going on, Good or bad. But we see the purpose in everything. And is that not the way out? To know that God has sent this for my good, that all things work together for good, is what enables me to say no to those things that I know that will not be good for me. If we are fighting the fight, and enduring faithfully the trials, if if we aren't fighting the fight and enduring faithfully the trials, then we aren't either, we're not in the fight at all, or we're in danger of being ineffectual. Does any true Christian, any true lover of Christ want to be ineffectual in the cause of Christ? Well, I certainly hope not. So Paul has certainly given us some convicting words, but in, in a sense, it's Christianity 101. It's just the way it is. And, uh, that's okay, because if you love Christ, these things are not something we don't want to give. The things we want to do, we just need the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to do so. Any questions or comments? For your attention, I'll give you a good week. May the Lord bless you. Peace,